Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And we are just going to be in Moses 7 today. So no Genesis, just the JST of Genesis. In other words, today is all Joseph Smith's edition, giving us things that were stripped from the Bible and taken out of the Bible. So that causes us to say, okay, what's so important that Joseph would put an entire chapter back in, and what's so critical that the church, as they planned out a very large Old Testament study year, would focus an entire week on Moses 7? Now, there's a lot of answers to that question, and as you study this week, you're going to find some wonderful truths, but I would suggest that the critical piece that is restored by Joseph Smith, that is worth an entire week's study, is the nature of God in the Old Testament. Most people have come to the conclusion that the God of the Old Testament is harsh and cruel and uncaring and unkind, which is probably Satan's motive when he pulled the plain and precious things out of the Bible. His motive was to reduce God to someone that people couldn't trust and couldn't love, because they begin to doubt that he has their best interest at stake. And if Satan can get you to doubt that about God, he wins a great victory. So this week, we get to see something that you're not going to see hardly ever in the Old Testament. You're going to watch God weep as he destroys the wicked. Now, will he destroy the wicked? Yes. Does he have a very good reason to do so? He does. We'll talk about that next week when we do the flood. And as an act of mercy and kindness to the unborn children, he cleanses the earth so that they could not have to come down to wicked families. So there's always an element of God is being kind in his destruction, but what we don't see hardly ever in the Old Testament are the weeping eyes. Behind the scenes, as God does destroy people, he weeps. I really do think this is the main thing in Moses 7, the character of God. And in my mind, it's really not popping up anywhere in Genesis. And I don't know of a lot of places in the Old Testament that give this portrayal. This stuff is gold, isn't it? It is. And I can only think of one similar place, and that's in Ezekiel at the culmination of the Babylonian captivity where the Babylons are destroying the Jews in massive numbers, there's this beautiful little insight in Ezekiel 18 where God says, have I any pleasure that the wicked are punished? He says, have I any pleasure at all? No. The answer is the only reason that this happens is so that they turn and change. In other words, I have no pleasure in the punishment of my children, but I do it so that they can receive a greater reward. So there's little snippets of it throughout the Old Testament, but nowhere like you're going to find in Moses chapter 7. Another one that really hit me as you were talking, but it doesn't pop up in the English, is the Hosea 6.6, where God says, I desire chesed and not sacrifice. And chesed is this covenant love, this deep emotional love that's between two people that are kin. And 
it just is translated as mercy. I desired mercy and not sacrifice. So we kind of lose the meaning in the King James English. But that is something that Jesus is going to take and run with when he's talking to the Pharisees that are like, hey, we're doing all these things. And Jesus is like, you're missing the whole point. God is the manifestation of hesed. So there's another one in Hosea, isn't there, like Hosea 11 or something? Yeah, well, God says to Hosea, I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man. In other words, I'm not vengeful. I'm not petty. I don't think about getting even like men often do. And so there are little snippets throughout the Old Testament where we do get to see the true nature of God, but for the most part, it's lost. And what we're left with can be seen as this vengeful, uncaring God. So you have to hear this. It is everything to him to save you. So Enoch is with God looking at the inhabitants of the earth. Now, a lot of prophets get to do that. Brother of Jared, is shown all the inhabitants of the earth from the beginning to the end. Moses has shown all the inhabitants of the earth from the beginning to the end. Enoch's going to be as well. And as they look particularly at the people who are going to be destroyed in the flood because of their severe wickedness, verse 28, the God of heaven looked upon the residue of the people and he wept. And Enoch bore record of it. Now, Enoch, who knows the wickedness of the people and knows that this is the right thing to do is bothered by God weeping. It's kind of like a child when mom is weeping and they go over there and they hug mom. Why are you crying, mom? Enoch is having that moment. And he says, how is it that the heavens weep and shed forth their tears as the rain upon the mountains? How is it that you can weep seeing thou art holy and from all eternity to all eternity? He's really shaken. He points out, verse 31, of the greatness of God. Were it possible that man could number the particles of the earth, yea, millions of earths like this, it would not even be the beginning of the number of thy creations. That's how great and glorious he is. Why are you crying? What made you so upset that you're weeping? You have all these worlds. You are this majestic, mighty God. Now, notice in verse 31, Enoch understands his mercy. He says, for all thy creations and from all eternity to all eternity, and not but peace and justice and truth is the habitation of thy throne, and mercy shall go forth before thy face and have no end. So he knows the character of God. But then he asks, how is it that you can weep? Now, the next few verses are the Lord answering that question. And I need each one of you to promise me that as you study the Old Testament, you will remember the next few verses and hear them. When you study the law of Moses and you study things that seem to be harsh and cruel, promise me you'll remember these moments where Enoch says, how come you're crying? And the Lord says in verse 32, behold thy brethren. They are the work of mine own hands. And I gave unto them their knowledge. In the day I created them, and in the Garden of Eden, gave I unto man his agency. Now they get to choose for themselves. He says, look, I know I've created worlds without number, but that doesn't matter to me. What matters to me are my children. 
And unto thy brethren have I said and also given commandment that they should love one another and that they should choose me their father. Those are the two great commandments. It's fascinating that he reverses the order, though. He lists the first one as love of neighbor, and the second one is love of father, love of God. But the problem is his children don't obey his commandments, but behold, they are without affection, and they hate their own blood. And now because of that, verse 34, the fire of mine indignation is kindled against them. In my hot displeasure will I send in the floods upon the earth. Why? Because I am God. Man of holiness is my name. Man of counsel is my name. Endless and eternal is my name. He is a God of justice. And the same thing we talked about last year in Doctrine and Covenants, it says there is a law irrevocably decreed in heaven upon which all blessings are predicated. And when you obtain a blessing from God, it is by obedience to the law upon which it is predicated. If you don't obey, you can't get the blessing. And they have not obeyed and they can't receive the blessing. End of verse 37, wherefore should not the heavens weep, seeing these shall suffer. There's the line you've got to memorize. Shouldn't the heavens weep, seeing that they will suffer? Now, someone's going to say, well, then don't punish them. And that would defeat all of the purposes of God. He would cease to be God if he does not live up to the requirements of the law that he has, that he must administer the law. He says in verse 38, "'These which thine eyes are upon shall perish in the flood.'" and a prison have I prepared for them. They're going to go into the spirit world and into the prison portion of the spirit world. But even look at verse 39. Look at the hope that God still has for them. That which I have chosen, meaning Jesus, hath pled before my face. Wherefore, he suffered for their sins, inasmuch as they will repent in the day that my chosen shall return unto me. But until then, they're going to be in torment. By the way, Bryce, that verse is so deep. There's so many things happening in verse 39. But to me, one of the things that really hits me is that the dead have hope. Yeah. That's a Christian teaching. That's section 138, isn't it? Yes, it's covenants. also section 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants that Mike and I talked about last year, that there is an exit to hell. And anyone who wants to can get out of hell as long as they repent and change and accept the Savior. And so he's holding out hope that even in prison, they might change. And again, that goes back to what he's, he's going to say in Ezekiel. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? No, only that they change and receive the blessing that God wants for them. And it's because of this torment, verse 40, he culminates and says, for this shall the heavens weep. Every single time someone suffers, especially needlessly suffers because their suffering is because of their choices to not obey God. Anytime someone suffers, God is going to weep over their suffering. Now, verse 41 is the result that has on Enoch. Now, tell me, this isn't Jesus all over the place. If ever there is a description of Jesus in the book of Moses, it's here, and yet it's describing Enoch's reaction to God weeping. Having seen the destruction that's waiting, having seen the emotion of God that he has for his children— Watch Enoch's reaction. 
And this is the reaction of all righteous people to the suffering of others, especially suffering for sin. But most of all, you've got to hear Jesus. This is why he atoned. It came to pass that he, the Lord spake unto Enoch and told Enoch all the doings of the children of men. Wherefore Enoch knew and looked upon their wickedness and their misery. Let's be clear. Alma 41, 10. Wickedness never was happiness. Wickedness is going to bring a misery. And Enoch is looking at the misery that is going to come into their lives because of their choices. And Enoch weeps. That's the result. If you come unto God, you will weep for the things that God weeps. Because you start seeing how he sees, you, right? That's exactly right. You see what God sees. And so now Enoch weeps for their wickedness and their suffering and their misery. Now, again, listen to this and picture Christ in Gethsemane. He looked upon their misery and he wept and he stretched forth his arms and his heart swelled wide as eternity and his bowels yearned and all eternity shook. Now, if ever there's a description of why Christ atoned, that's it. It's so poetic. It's beautifully written. His arms are stretched forth to us. He is reaching out to us, every single one of us. He is reaching out because he doesn't want us to suffer. Now, just as a total side note, again, as long as we're pointing out prophets who typify Christ, look at what the sons of Mosiah go through after their conversion. The Book of Mormon says the following, Now, they were desirous that salvation should be declared to every creature, for they could not bear that any human soul should perish. Yea, even the very thoughts that any soul should endure endless torment did cause them to quake and tremble. Now, that's Mosiah 28.3. But do you see that pattern? We see it in Enoch. We see it in the sons of Mosiah. Those people who come unto Christ begin to feel what Christ feels for us. If the sons of Mosiah couldn't stand the thought of anyone suffering in eternity— doesn't it describe why Christ atoned is because he didn't want people to suffer for eternity? You have to see that God as we study the Old Testament. So for me, I think that's the main reason that Moses 7 was restored by Joseph Smith. Do not forget his reaching out and stretching forth his arms and his heart swelling wide as eternity and his bowels yearning and all eternity shaking. It is everything to him to save you. Yeah. I think that is the main thing. I mean, if you, let's say you had 20 minutes in front of a classroom and you had to teach the main point of Moses 7, who is God, is brilliant. I just want to read this. It's just a fascinating take by the Givenses, uh, Terrell and Fiona. They write in a book called The God Who Weeps. They write, quote, the most remarkable religious document published in the 19th century may well be an ascension narrative in which the prophet Enoch is taken into heaven and records his ensuing vision. And then they talk about the things that he sees that we're going to cover today in the podcast. But then they talk about the tears of God, and they say the question here is not about the reason behind God's tears. Enoch does not ask, why do you weep? But rather, he asks, how are your tears even possible? seeing that thou art holy and from all eternity to all eternity. Clearly, Enoch, 
who believed God to be merciful and kind forever, did not expect such a being could be moved to the point of distress by the sins of his children. And so a third time he asks, how is it that thou can weep? The answer turns out is that God is not exempt from emotional pain. Exempt? On the contrary, God's pain is as infinite as his love. He weeps because he feels compassion. It's not their wickedness, the wickedness of his children, but their misery, their suffering that elicits the tears of God. And then I love this statement. Not until Gethsemane and Golgotha does the scriptural record reveal so unflinchingly the costly investment of God's love in his people, the price at which he placed his heart upon them. There could be nothing in this universe or in any possible universe more perfectly good, absolutely beautiful, worthy of adoration, and deserving of emulation than this God of love and kindness and vulnerability. And I like that last word, Bryce, that idea that God is vulnerable. In other words, that he feels emotion. To me, Moses 7 invites us to understand what it means to be God. And I think when sometimes our enemies castigate us, Bryce, and they say, oh, you Mormons think that you can become gods. I think that statement is filled with misunderstanding. I think in our faith tradition, if we say what it means to be God is to be vulnerable and to have compassion and to have love and to have family, that's a different thing. Yeah. God cares what I do and cares what I think. And some people get uncomfortable with him being that much a part of our life. They'd like to keep God at a distance. Well, the God that's at a distance is uncaring. The God that's in the details of my life is the caring God. And this is difficult, and I don't mean to be derogatory towards any other faith tradition, but I think when you get into the third and fourth centuries of Christianity, they stripped God of who he was, and the literal things they made figurative, and the figurative things they made literal. What I mean by that is God stopped being our father. He's not even human. By the time you get to the fourth century, God is this individual that's outside of humanity, and we as human beings are others. Creations. We're creations. Not children. Yes. And then the idea of, okay, becoming children of God in John 1 becomes figurative. They certainly don't take it literal. And I think what's fascinating is a 14-year-old walks out of the sacred grove and sees a father and son with fingers and a face and realizes that they are like us. Now, granted, they're exalted. I don't want to bring God down. But my point is that changes everything. It does. But it also makes him a little scary as well. So therein is the challenge. To understand that he is a personal God also makes us vulnerable because he's going to be involved in the details of my life, and he's going to ask me to change. I received this from one of my students, and with her permission, I share it. I won't use her name. She said the following, what scares me about letting him in is being vulnerable and this sense of being unworthy. I know I'm not unworthy, but I feel like no matter what I do, it is never enough. I feel like when I'm asked to do something, I'm asked to do it perfectly. Again, I know that's not true, but I never feel like I'm enough. I just have it in my head that I have to be perfect or else I'll be criticized. I don't want to let him in because I don't want to feel that feeling. I've always had a hard time letting people in, especially those that can have an impact on my life. I always fear what I will feel when and if they leave. I don't want to build relationships in fear of losing them, especially if it's a relationship I hold close to my heart. If I don't let someone in, then they can't hurt me. Now I know that God won't hurt me, 
but there is still a deep-rooted fear that he will by what he asks of me. As soon as I feel vulnerable, this massive wall comes up. It's been that way for so long, I don't even realize it's happening. And when it does, I push away whatever it is that makes me feel vulnerable until I feel safe again. I've pushed him pretty far away. And I've felt pretty vulnerable since I've been home from my mission. And now I've closed myself off to anything that might make me feel like the person I was, especially and ultimately God himself. I think that's why people might push that doctrine away, Mike, that I love the idea of God being personal, but I'm also scared of the idea of God being personal. And so that's why over history, I think it's easy to understand why these truths are going to get lost, because the truth of a personal, intimate God involved in my life who weeps over my pain is also one that's begging me to change and obey his commandments so that I don't suffer. But I bear witness of him. I bear witness of that love that Enoch got to feel. And we need to feel it. And we need to understand that that's the God of the Old Testament. It is everything to him to save you. God is not an umpire waiting to call you out. He is the third base coach waving you home. Just a couple of really cool Doctrine and Covenant scriptures. Section 29 He says in verse 5, I am in your midst and am your advocate with the Father, and it is his good will to give you the kingdom. He wants you to be saved. He wants to give you the kingdom. Let me give you another one. Doctrine and Covenants section 78, verses 17 and 18. Verily, verily, I say unto you, you are little children. And you have not as yet understood how great blessings the Father hath in his own hands and prepared for you. You cannot bear all things now. Nevertheless, be of good cheer, for I will lead you along. The kingdom is yours, and the blessings thereof are yours, and the riches of eternity are yours. That's the God of the Old Testament. Don't separate the God of the Book of Mormon and the God of the Doctrine and Covenants from the God of the Old Testament, the one that weeps when the wicked have to suffer for their transgressions. I think the Bible, having been edited, has lost some of this. I believe that this stuff going on in Moses 7 was actually given to a man named Enoch, and this theme of who God is— is going to be rejected by both Judaism and Christianity, and a lot of this stuff is going to go underground. The prophets that teach these things are rejected. I mean, a big example is Lehi. If you read the beginning of the Book of Mormon, Lehi and Nephi are teaching these same kinds of things about the Messiah coming down and dying and getting resurrected and the end times and Lehi and Nephi are rejected by the Jews of the 6th century in Jerusalem. It's these same individuals that are going to edit the Bible. The Bible is going to be edited. So if we think for a minute that the Bible, as we have it now, was like this email attachment that came straight down from heaven from one person, we're going to be highly disappointed. But if we can just swim in the water of knowing that the Bible has been edited, 
and that there are theological discussions that are taking place, and the stuff in Enoch is going to be rejected. Men like Lehi and Nephi are going to be, in many cases, taken out of the Bible. It really will help us understand the Bible. That being said, I love the Bible. There's so much that was left that's good, but this nature of God, not in there. Now, what's fascinating is that the Nephites and Lamanites who go to America have an Old Testament that we don't have. And when they looked at the Old Testament, when they looked at the law of Moses, they had a very, very different perspective of it. Let me just read a handful. I'm going to give you a list. You can read them on your own, but let me just pick out a few of them. Now, we'll put that list in our show notes, but here's my list. I want you to read 2 Nephi 11, 4, 2 Nephi 25, 24 through 25, Jacob 4, verse 5, Jerem 1, verse 11, Mosiah 3, 15, Mosiah 13, 27 through 30, Mosiah 16, verse 14, Alma 25, 15, and 16. Read that and tell me if they saw God in the Old Testament the same way that the world sees God in the Old Testament today. See, they had the unedited Bible, or at least relatively unedited. It had gone through an apostasy. Yeah, I think the term I'm going to use in the brass plates, and this is going to sound really weird, I'll explain it when we get there, but they had the Elohist text. They had the Northern Tribes text of the Bible. And Bryce, I want to add one to your list. It's the most footnoted verse in all of Scripture, and it's 1 Nephi 19.10. That's not in the Bible, but if you read 1 Nephi 19.10 and you understand that Lehi has access to this, it's a game changer, right? Right. And so they had a different Bible than what we have. Is that fair to say? Now listen, I'm just going to read that last one, Alma 25.16. Now this is from the Book of Mormon. Now they did not suppose that salvation came by the law of Moses. But the law of Moses did serve to strengthen their faith in Christ. And thus they did retain a hope through faith unto eternal salvation, relying upon the spirit of prophecy which spake of those things to come. That's what the law of Moses did in the Book of Mormon. It strengthened their faith in Christ. Rather than presenting this God that is maybe not trustworthy because he doesn't seem to have my best interest at heart, they saw a God who was kind and wanted to save them. So as you read through that list, you'll get a very different picture of the God that the Book of Mormon prophets saw in the Old Testament. So let's go back to the beginning of his weeping and hear what Enoch said. I'm going to read Moses 7, verse 30, where he says, And yet thou art there. And thy bosom is there, and also thou art just, and art merciful, and art kind forever. And then in verse 31 again, he says, Not but peace, justice, and truth is thy habitation of thy throne, and mercy shall go before thy face and have no end. Now, that's the truth about God that gets edited out of the Bible. And let's make sure as we study the edited version, we restore that truth. Then we've done the most important thing. Now we can get to the rest of Moses chapter 7. And there's a whole lot here. Enoch is a bigger player than anyone realizes. I don't think there's very many people who appreciate what Joseph Smith is doing here. 
and that appreciate that Joseph Smith is opening the door and showing us a little glimpse as to Enoch. Now, scholarship, modern discoveries of the book of Enoch are telling us how incredible Enoch was and how much of an impact he made on the whole rest of the Old Testament. All right, Mike. Uh, First, I want to start with the idea of what is apocalyptic? Apocalyptic literature and apocalyptic texts and apocalyptic prophets are these teachings or ideas that there is going to be an end time, that there is a duality, there is good and evil, righteousness and destruction, and there are these two forces that are fighting and that the earth's going to be cleansed. The earth's going to be cleansed. It's going to be renewed. Bryce, read that article of faith about the earth being restored. Article of Faith 10, we believe in the literal gathering of Israel and the restoration of the ten tribes that Zion, the new Jerusalem, will be built upon the American continent, that Christ will reign personally upon the earth, and that the earth will be renewed and receive its paradisical glory. So much of that article of faith is apocalyptic in nature. The idea that Christ is going to reign on the earth, the earth is going to receive its paradisical glory. Now, apocalyptic literature and apocalyptic prophets really aren't given to us in great detail in the beginnings of the Bible. The first real stuff that's apocalyptic in nature in the Bible that we have is popping up in Isaiah. You get a little bit of the imagery in Ezekiel. You get some apocalyptic stuff in in Zechariah. But there's just not a lot going on in the Old Testament. But my belief is this, that Enoch was a person, that he predated Noah whenever this was, and that God is speaking to Enoch and he's giving him this message, that there's going to be an end time, that God's going to send his son, he's going to come down and die, and the earth is going to rest not only when Jesus is resurrected, but at the end times when everything is taken care of and good wins. But the book of Enoch doesn't make it into the Bible because it's apocalyptic in nature. The book of Enoch has a lot of the images of the book of Revelation, but the book of Revelation, a lot of Christians in the fourth century were talking about rejecting it. When they were trying to decide what to do with the text that they had, they were trying to come up with a canon. And if you get into the weeds of the history it wasn't really until Marcion, where Marcion says, look, I'm going to go with Luke and some of the writings of Paul. I'm going to reject all the Old Testament. Marcion goes around, and his followers are called Marcionites, and he's going around saying, hey, this is the canon. So it was it was in response to Marcion that the bishops of the early church decided, we've got to get a canon. If we're going to have this thing called Christianity, it's going to be a thing. We've got to decide what's canonical. So what do we do with the Gospel of Thomas? What do we do with the Book of Revelation? Like, what do we do with these books? And so in 367 um, AD, this guy by the name of Athanasius, he writes this festal letter about Easter. But in this letter, he proposes the 27 books of the New Testament. And he says, these are the ones I think we're going to go with. Now, it doesn't really become canon until later, but we're talking fourth century at the end when Christians come up with what they decide to be canon. And my point is a lot of Christians didn't know what to do with the book of Revelation. They're like, "What? this is so strange. Well, That's kind of like the book of Enoch. The book of Enoch that doesn't make it into the Bible has a lot of the images of the book of Revelation because it's apocalyptic in nature, because of some of the things it says about God and angels and good and evil. And Enoch was discovered and published in about 1821. Now, we talked about this in the last podcast, so I'm not going to go into 
first and second and third Enoch a lot as far as the backstory of that. But just know that Joseph's sitting down in 1830, and he hasn't even read the book of Enoch. And he's giving us Moses 7 in a couple of days. He might have done this in one sitting. Joseph's letters don't write like this. This is not Joseph. This is straight from heaven. It's just such a powerful text. This text of Moses 7 is restoring the gist of what was lost. And so there's this story in Enoch about these two powers, and it's the root of evil or the roots of why do bad things happen? Remember, um, the Bible tries to answer questions of origins, and we call these etiological tales. And one of the big questions of the Old Testament that they try to answer is, why do bad things happen, or why does evil happen? And the Christian response is, well, the fall of Adam. And that is a big deal, that Adam and Eve being cast out of the garden introduces this duality, this world of multiplicity or opposition or mortality. But another big narrative in the Old Testament and the backdrop to much of the Old Testament and the New Testament, especially the apocalyptic stuff going on in the Bible. So I'm talking Isaiah, I'm talking Zechariah. This idea of the the kingdom coming, what does it mean when Jesus says the kingdom is coming or my kingdom is not of this world? Jesus is channeling these ideas that good will prevail and there'll be this cosmic change and the earth will change. And so the book of Enoch, the stuff that was original, like the original person who writes this stuff, is the backdrop to so much of what is going on in the Old Testament. There's like these two rivers that are trying to explain evil. One of them is the fall and the other one are the dark spirits, these spirits that come to earth that cause problems. Now, this is going to seem kind of weird, so I'm going to start with what we know. First, if you've been to the temple, there's this line where the adversary is speaking to Adam and Eve and to God. Satan says, essentially, I'm going to take the spirits that follow me, and I'm going to cause all kinds of problems. I'm going to assemble a team, and my team's going to take on your team. Yeah. If you've seen movies, you know, we see this in the Avengers, the good guys versus the bad guys, but all movies and all stories kind of do this, whether we're talking about Tolkien with, you know, the dark forces versus the light forces, or you're talking C.S. Lewis. I know occasionally Bryce may have mentioned C.S. Lewis, and I may have mentioned Tolkien. My brother always says, I always know when it's you talking, Mike, because you do Tolkien, and I know Bryce, because Bryce is doing C.S. Lewis. But these ideas of the duality, the light versus darkness, it's at the root of apocalyptic prophets. And so we see this in the temple where Satan's like, I'm going to assemble a team. And we see this in the book of Enoch. The book of Enoch that doesn't make it into the Bible. And we see this in the book of Revelation. If you go to chapter 12, it says in verse 1, there appeared a wonder in heaven, a woman, the divine woman, clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head, a crown of 12 stars. And then she's with child in verse 2, and she's going to give birth. But then there's this dragon in verse 3, a red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns. And his tail drew a third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And so what does the woman do? Well, she has the child, and verse 6 says she flees into the wilderness. And then it says in verse 7 that there was a war in heaven, and Michael and his angels, so those are going to be the good guys, they fight against the dragon, and the dragon fought, and his angels. So we have the dragon, that old serpent, the devil, and his angels fighting, and verse 8 says, and prevailed not. Now that's going to mean that the bad guys lose. They don't prevail neither was their place found any more for them in heaven. So Revelation 12 sets up the story that there is this rebellion of these angels in heaven, but they're kicked out of heaven. That's 
verse 8. Verse 9 says, The great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast into the earth. Verse 10, And I heard a loud voice saying, In heaven now is come salvation and strength, and the kingdom of our God. The idea of a kingdom of our God is also at the heart of apocalyptic, that the good guys are going to have a kingdom and it's going to win and the earth will be restored to its paradisical glory. So back to verse 10, the power of his Christ for the accuser, the ha-satan, that's what ha-satan is, the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. My take on them, who's he accusing? It's the good guys. He's accusing the people that follow Jesus. And verse 11, they overcome by their testimony of Christ and by the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb is what's going to save us. And this message of the blood of the Lamb saving us is obliquely taught in the Old Testament, but it's not in your face. The Christians are going to say, hey, the Lamb is Jesus. It's his blood that saves us. This is what Enoch's going to teach. This is what Nephi is going to teach. But that kind of direct speech is really not contained in the Old Testament because I, again, contend it's been edited. There's been layers. It's kind of like a tell. If, you go, if you're an archaeologist and you go to an ancient city, there's layers of settlement. And as a new settlement comes, they'll build on the old one. And then the next one will build on that one. And so the deep down you go, you see that there's layers. Or if you watch Shrek, right? Ogres are like onions because onions have layers. Like the Old Testament is like that. It's messy and it's got layers. And the argument for a long time has been that the writing of Revelation influenced the book of Enoch. But then they discovered, oh my goodness, we've got 2nd century BC texts of Enoch. We've got the Aramaic Enoch that's discovered at Cave 4 at Qumran with uh, the Book of the Giants in it. We've got stuff that's way predating Jesus and Christianity. And so scholars have kind of had to rethink, what do we do with this? And so the current thinking is that the texts of the Book of Enoch had a deep impact on the Bible that it had influenced their thinking, influenced how they viewed Jesus, how they viewed evil, how they viewed Satan. And my take is that the book of Enoch came from somewhere, and the somewhere is the original thing. So we don't have the original thing, so what we have is copies of copies, and, and it's like an email joke that, you know, if your friend sends you an email joke, and then six months later, you get a different version of it that's been added to and changed a little bit. Well, that's kind of like how texts kind of grow legs and kind of get added to and changed. And so what we have in first, second, and third Enoch today are like copies of copies with things added to it. I hope that makes sense. So with that in mind, I'm going to read pieces of First Enoch, and I'm doing this to let you see kind of the backdrop to the Old Testament and to the New Testament and to introduce us into some of the ideas that we're going to talk about next week when we get to the flood narrative. You see, next week we're going to read Genesis 6 through 11, and the first four verses of Genesis 6 are really weird, and we skip them. And I think we do ourselves a disservice because if we don't talk about them, we kind of miss so many things that is happening all over the place. I mean, this stuff is going to explain some of the things that Paul says. These verses in Genesis 6 are going to explain what Jesus says at the base of Mount Hermon in Matthew 16, where he says, Peter, I give you the keys of the kingdom of God, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of heaven shall not prevail against it. The roots of those words are in Enoch. And so we're not going to do it all. We're going to do part of it now, and we'll do part of it next week. So let's go to the book of Enoch. Now, those of you looking for it in your scriptures, nope, you're not going to find it. This is an apocryphal book. 
but there is out there a book of Enoch, and now we know that Joseph Smith is revealing that Enoch was a bigger character than anyone who reads the Old Testament thought, and now we're realizing, oh my goodness, he really was. Yeah. Thank you. So I'm, re- I'm going to read pieces of First Enoch chapter 6. I'm going to link this in the show notes. There's a lot of different translations, and they're all kind of saying the same thing, that the words might change a little bit. So you can pick your translation, but here it is. It came to pass when the sons of men had increased, in those days there were born to them fair and beautiful daughters. Verse 2, And the angels, the sons of heaven, saw them and desired them. And they said to one another, Come, let us choose for ourselves wives from the children of men, and let us beget for ourselves children. And Shemyaza, who was their leader, said to them, I fear that you may not wish this deed to be done, and that I alone will pay for this great sin. So we have this angel, his name is Shemyaza, and he's basically saying, I'm afraid if I do this, that I'm going to have to pay for it. And so the other angels answer him, and they say in verse 4, let us all swear an oath and bind one another with curses, so not to alter this plan, but to carry out this plan effectively. And so they all swore together and bound one another with curses to it. And they were in all 200, and they came down on Artis, which is the summit of Mount Hermon. And they called the mountain Hermon because on it they swore and bound one another with curses. So in the seventh chapter, verse one says that they took wives and everyone chose for himself one. And they began to go in unto them and were promiscuous with them. So there's this idea of fertility with these angels that come to earth. And then verse six says they became pregnant, these women, and bore large giants. And their height was 3,000 cubits. By the way, a cubit is for a grown man. If you touch your elbow to the tip of your middle finger, that's a cubit. So that's 18 inches. And so when it talks about um, you know, Goliath was six cubits in a span. We're talking, this guy is bigger than anybody in the NBA. So if you're 3,000 cubits, I'm just going to say this, I don't take that literally. And early Christians read this stuff and they were like, what do we do with this? Is this canonical? And a lot of them debated and they're like, this can't be canonical. This is just too weird. Now, if you're listening to me read this, you're probably sitting there saying the same thing going, this is really weird. Like what's going on? But in the translation I'm reading, what's really cool about it is after each verse, the person that put this in here is referencing texts in the Bible. And if you read verse 2, where they bore large giants, you see Genesis 6, you see Numbers 13.30, Deuteronomy 2.10, Deuteronomy 2.19, Deuteronomy 3.11. So many verses in the Old Testament are referencing what are going to be called the Nephilim. The Nephilim are... We might as well throw Moses chapter 7, verse 15. It's in this week's reading of Moses 7. The giants of the land also stood afar off. Yeah. So we have giants in Moses. I'm just going to read Genesis 6, verse 1. It came to pass that when men began to multiply on the earth, or the face of the earth, daughters were born unto them, and the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives, all of which they chose. And then verse 4 says that there were giants in the earth in those days. Now, this is going to be the Nephilim in the Hebrew. We do giants because of the Greek translation. Gigantus is where we get the English word giants. And so there really are people that believe that in the old times that there were really tall guys walking around. I don't know anybody saying that there were 3,000 cubits. I don't take it literally, but I take this as the mythological backdrop to the Bible. 
And when I say myth, I'm definitely going to use myth as story. I'm going to interchange that idea. Myth as story, meaning it could be a true story, but also myth as a grand story that may not necessarily all be historically accurate. So I'm, I'm kind of swimming in both waters here for a second. And so if we relax our eyes a little bit and go back to this idea that there's a fall of Adam and Eve, but there's also this cosmic spiritual war, that there really is an adversary and he really does have people that follow him the angels, as it were, Revelation 12, that were cast down into the earth, that that's the backdrop to this. Now, in the Enoch literature, for chapters on end, they just talk about how these Nephilim, or these gigantes, these giants are the offspring of these watchers. They're called the watchers, and that's a weird word. It's in Daniel, and the Hebrew word is ear, and the Greek translators didn't know what to do with it, so they just transliterated it to a word that didn't, doesn't really mean a lot, ear. But ear is translated as watchers, or these are these divine beings, and that their offspring are these gigantes or these giants, and that they teach them the art of war, and that they teach them how to do evil things, and they teach them to kill one another and to hate their own blood. Now, to understand what I'm about to say, we have to understand a pivot point in the Bible, and that pivot point is the exile. When the Jews had their temple destroyed in 586, many of the elites, many of the literate people went to Babylon and they took their biblical text with them. They had a Hebrew Bible and what they did was they edited it. And they saw Babylon as the embodiment of evil. And we even, even today in our hymns, right? Oh, Babylon, oh, Babylon, we bid thee farewell. We're going to the mountains of Ephraim to dwell. This is in our hymns. This is in DNC verse one, uh, section one of the Doctrine and Covenants where God says, you know, get out of Babylon. Well, if you read Psalm 137, it's a powerful psalm, and it's written while they're in exile. Whoever's writing it is writing some horrible things that they say about Babylon and what they hoped that would happen to Babylon understanding how they felt about Babylon, that it was the embodiment of evil, we can then unpack some of the things going on in the Bible. Because in Babylon, there was this notion that their kings and their leaders descended from these divine beings that came down from heaven, and that they are the offspring, that their culture is the offspring of that union. And so the author of Genesis 6 is issuing a polemic against Babylon, saying, no, that story brought bad things, not good things. The story of divine beings going down from heaven, that was bad. That was not good. So big picture, we've all been introduced to Revelation 12. Many of us have been to the temple. We know that there's this story of good versus evil, and this idea that God's going to fix things and that the earth is going to be restored and receive its paradisical glory and that the king of heaven will come back to earth and that that king is Jesus. This is all going on in Moses 7, in Enoch's visions. You see, there's two sets of visions. There's one set in the early part of Moses 7, but the second set, look at this. Go to Moses 7, verse 24. And there came generation upon generation, and Enoch was high and lifted up, even in the bosom of the Father. So the first 23 verses, he's seeing a vision, but now verse 24, my take, is that he's up in heaven. He's in the bosom of the Father, and we get a second set of visionary experiences. And look what he sees, verse 24, the power of Satan was upon all the face of the earth. Now, I'm going to translate verse 25 through the lens of everything I just said. 
about these angels that came down and swore an oath at Hermon to take over the world and teach violence and cause chaos and wreak havoc and destroy the sons of men. That backdrop to verse 25 to me is everything we read in, in 1 Enoch 6 and 7. So take a good look at this and notice Joseph Smith, I'm just going to say this again, He's I think he's like 24 years old and he does this in a day and he hasn't even read the book of Enoch. This is gold and it's concentrated gold. Look what's going on in verse 25. And he saw angels descending out of heaven, this is Enoch, and he heard a loud voice saying, woe, woe unto the inhabitants of the earth. Now, on first reading, we read verse 25, and we're like, oh, yay, Enoch is seeing angels. But look at verse 26. And he beheld Satan, and he had a great chain in his hand, and it veiled the whole face of the earth with darkness. And he looked up and laughed, and his angels rejoiced. My take on verse 25 is, those are not good angels. Those are the bad angels. He sees them descending out of heaven. These are the watchers. These are the irim. These are the ear, the watchers, that he sees them. And why do I say that? Well, look at the end of verse 25. When the angels descend, it says, woe, woe into the inhabitants of the earth. If good angels are coming down, we're not doing this woe stuff. And then verse 26, he beheld Satan and he has a chain and his angels rejoice. So those are the bad guys. And there's so much going on here. And Joseph's not, he's not giving us this, but you read first Enoch chapter six and seven and you say, oh my goodness, this is what's going on. So then you go to verse 27, and Enoch beheld angels descending out of heaven, bearing testimony of the Father and the Son. And the Holy Ghost fell on many, and they were caught up by the powers of heaven into Zion. So those are the good guys, and the people on the earth are in the midst of this great tension, this great conflict, and it's a spiritual war. And I think understanding that spiritual war and really what's at stake leads us to the next subject of Moses, which is, what is this earth, and how wicked is it? And we get that in Enoch's vision here in Moses chapter 7. While the Lord is weeping, he says something that I think we ought to pause and talk about for a moment. In chapter 7, verse 36, the Lord says, I can stretch forth mine hands and hold all the creations which I have made, and mine eye can pierce them also. And among all the workmanship of mine hands, in all these worlds, the Lord says, there has not been so great wickedness as among thy brethren. In other words, that's the Lord saying, this is the most wicked of all planets. That's how I read it. And I, I know there are others that have a different take, but that's how I read verse 36. This is the most wicked of all Heavenly Father's creations. Now, may I suggest one of the reasons that that might be the case is that Satan was sent here, and here only. It could be argued, and I'm one of those, that Satan is not an essential part of the plan of salvation. I would argue that God's plan does not depend on one of his children rebelling against him. Now, it allows for it if there is one but it doesn't require. I would argue that it doesn't require one, that the natural man is necessary, that opposition is necessary, that we must be enticed to do evil. Absolutely, 100% agree with that. But we don't have to have a Lucifer who rebels against God. Therefore, I would suggest, and there are several scriptures that point out, that Satan wasn't spread out through among all of Heavenly Father's creations that Satan was sent here to this planet. 
Now, there's that hint in Revelation chapter 12 that Mike read, that he was sent to this earth. Brigham Young says the following in Discourses of Brigham Young. In regard to the battle in heaven, let me tell you that it was one-third part of the spirits who were prepared to take tabernacles upon this earth and who rebelled against the other two-thirds of the heavenly host. It is written that they were cast down to the earth. They were cast down to this globe, to this terra firma that you and I walk upon and whose atmosphere we breathe. One-third part of the spirits that were prepared for this earth rebelled against Jesus Christ and were cast down to the earth. And they have been opposed to him from that day to this, Lucifer at their head. So that might confirm why this is the most wicked creation of Heavenly Father, that Satan is here. The Book of Mormon suggests that the Jews were the only people that would crucify their God. That's uh, 2 Nephi 10, verse 3. Yes. And I would apply that verse to this planet is the only planet that would crucify Christ. It's the planet that has Lucifer and his angels. And therefore, this is also the planet that Christ calls home. Here's the point I want to make. The Heavenly Father says this is the most wicked planet, and it's probably because Satan is here. In other words, this is perhaps the hardest place to live and be righteous. It's harder here on this earth to be good, to follow Christ, to save other people, to go on a mission to be an inspiration, to lead people to righteousness and goodness. It's harder on this planet than on other planets. Therefore, the reason I bring this up is to suggest to you, all of you listening and wanting to be righteous and wanting to grow closer to Christ, it suggests to me that you are the best he has, that you came to the hardest place as a tribute to who you are. When I was exiting my teenage years, about two years after I graduated from high school, Boyd K. Packer spoke in conference to the youth of the church. Now, I felt young enough that I felt like he was talking to me, and it made an impression upon me that I'll never forget. To the youth of the church, Elder Packer said, quote, I wish we could promise you that the world will be safer and easier for you than for us. But we cannot make that promise, for just the opposite is true. There are temptations beckoning to you that were not there when we were teenagers. We knew about opium from reading mysteries, but steroids and pills and crack and all the rest belong to future imaginations. Modesty was not mocked then. Morality and courtesy were fostered in books and films as much as their opposites are today. Perversion was not talked about, much less endorsed as a lifestyle. What was shunned then as pornographic, you now see on primetime television. Your challenge is much greater than was ours. Now, listen to what Boyd K. Packer, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, said to the youth of the church. Few of us would trade places with you. Frankly, we're quite relieved we're not back where you are. Few of us would be equal to it. I think that's a significant statement. Boyd K. Packer is saying, there's a reason I'm not a youth today, and you are. You are equal to the challenge you face. 
He then concludes, what a wonderful time to be young. You have knowledge of many more things than we needed to have. It is my conviction that your generation is better and stronger than was ours, better in many ways. I have faith that you young men and young women can meet the world on its own terms and conquer it. Now, apply that to this planet. Few of Heavenly Father's spirits are equal to the challenge of coming to this planet and facing Lucifer. If it's true that he's not on other planets, that he's only here, then other spirits don't have to face him, but we do. And the reason for that is we are equal to that challenge. I say that to each of you to build you up and help you understand that you are great in the eyes of God, that you were sent to this planet for a purpose. Let that tell you that you're greater and you're doing better than you realized you were doing, that we have come to this planet because we are equal to that challenge and that we have all that we need to be successful. I think that is a wonderful little insight thrown into Enoch's words. And so I'm going to counter what he says in Moses 7, verse 36, with the following quotation from Wilford Woodruff. Notice he's going to use the exact same phrasing. And you can find this in the teachings of Ezra Taft Benson, page 555. President Woodruff said, The Lord has chosen a small number of choice spirits of sons and daughters out of all the creations of God who are to inherit this earth. And this company of choice spirits have been kept in the spirit world for 6,000 years to come forth in the last days to stand upon the flesh in this last dispensation of the fullness of times to organize the kingdom of God upon the earth and to build it up and to defend it and to receive the eternal and everlasting priesthood of God. That is who you are. That's who your children are and your grandchildren. That's who we're raising. The very ones held in reserve to come to this planet and face a Lucifer because they can handle it. And I would predict that it's going to get more chaotic before the Savior comes. See, the culmination of Moses 7 is that the good guys win, that Jesus, the blood of the Lamb, is going to fix everything. But until we get there, we have this duality, and there's this great contention. There's this great chaos conf, the battle of light versus darkness. So go to Moses 7, verse 15. So we have the giants in the land. There's the curse upon all people. Verse 16 talks about wars and bloodshed. And then it says in verse 17, the fear of the Lord was upon all nations. So great was the glory of the Lord, which was upon his people. And the Lord blessed the land and they were blessed upon the mountains and upon the high places and they did flourish. Now, Read verse 14 as the backdrop to Zion. There came up a land out of the depths of the sea, and so great was the fear of the enemies of the people of God that they fled and stood afar off and went upon the land which came up out of the depths of the sea. So one way you can read this is that a land comes up out of the depths of the sea and the enemies of God go to that land because they're afraid. They're afraid of the power of God. The other way you could read it is this, that there came a land up out of the depths of the sea and they fled, meaning the good guys fled, and they stood afar off, and they were on this land that came up out of the depths of the sea. 
either way, here's what you have. You have a separation between the righteous and the wicked. You have a land that's coming up out of the depths of the sea. The sea, the yam, is going to be the symbol of chaos. My take on verse 14 is that we're talking about a battle for the temple. We're talking about a battle for sacred space. And Heavenly Father's team are going to go to the space that's holy, that's sacred. And it's coming out of the chaos. And I'm going to tag this to what Bryce just read from President Packer. I mean, it's chaos. The stuff that President Packer had to deal with when he was a teenager in the 30s and 40s, hello, we're not living in that world anymore. Like we're a hundred years after his time and we got more chaos than ever. And I would submit to you that in the next hundred years, it's going to get more chaotic before the Savior comes. But the culmination of Moses 7 is that the good guys win, that Jesus, the blood of the lamb, is going to fix everything. And so my take on verse 14 is that that's the pretext to Exodus 15, the song of the sea, Miriam's song of the sea, where Moses is the new Enoch, and he splits the sea and creates a new land where the righteous can live. So as that is the backdrop, now go to verse 18. The Lord called his people Zion. The first time we're going to read Zion in the Bible is 2 Samuel 5. Zion is a big deal. And I think Zion, this is just my take, I think Zion should be before 2 Samuel 5. I think it should be in the Bible, but I think it's edited out once again. And here it is. It's right here in Moses 7.18. So what is it? Well, they were one heart and one mind. They dwelt in righteousness. There was no poor among them. That's the rest of Moses 7.18. I remember memorizing that in seminary. We would memorize it and and it would just kind of come off our lips. And sometimes we didn't think about what it meant. So, So what does this mean? Well, what does it mean to be one? So much, right? I mean, this is the backdrop to so much of what Joseph's trying to establish in the Doctrine and Covenants. I think sometimes we talk about Joseph restoring the church, but I think Joseph was bigger than that. I think Joseph wanted to restore Zion. It was about the temple and Zion and not so much meeting houses. And so sometimes when we say, I know the church is true, I think Joseph would say, well, the embodiment of Zion is true. Like the goal, the cosmic view of what God wants to restore to the earth, that is what we want. We want Zion. We want to be one. We want to live in a place where there's no poor among us. Verse 19, Enoch continued his preaching and righteousness unto the people of God, and it came to pass in his days that he built a city that was called the city of holiness, even Zion, and came to pass that Enoch talked with the Lord. And he said unto the Lord, Surely Zion shall dwell in safety forever. But the Lord said to Enoch, Zion have I blessed, but the residue of people have I cursed. I think the cursing is really going to be the people that depart from God. They make the choices that cause them to be cursed. And so there's this division where once again to this duality of light and darkness. And verse 21 says in the middle of the verse, Zion in process of time was taken up into heaven. I want to reference the Enoch verse in the Bible. Go to verse 21 of Genesis 5. Enoch lived 60 and 5 years and begat Methuselah, and Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That's it. So those couple verses, and the Lord's like, no, that's not going to work. We've got to give you more stuff. And so Moses 7 is explaining all this stuff. And the backdrop to Zion like I said, doesn't come up until 2 Samuel 5, but Zion or Sion can mean a lot of things. I love this from 
Donald and Jay Perry, they say that the book of Moses designates a couple different definitions for Zion. You know, the city can be designated as Zion or New Jerusalem or a holy city or mine abode. And then they say that the name even can mean place of safety. And then they write this, that the Hebrew word Zion can mean stronghold or citadel. New Jerusalem, the second name, relates Zion to Jerusalem of ancient Palestine. But it is marked new to differentiate it from the old Jerusalem, the third name, the holy city shows Zion to be consecrated and set apart from other places. And the fourth name, mine abode, Moses 7.68, indicates that Zion will be the Lord's home where he will reign for a thousand years. And so I really like Jay and Donald Perry's definition of Zion. I want to just say this, that Sion can also be related to Sion. You see, if you just move one little point, a little vowel point, it goes from Sion to Sion. And the word Sion is pretty cool. It means a signpost or a marker or a monument. I just want to read a couple verses so we can kind of get our bearings on this. If you go to Jeremiah 31, 21, set thee up waymarks, make thee high heaps, Set thine heart towards the highway. So the idea of waymarks and high heaps, they would have boundary markers in ancient Israel. And one of the 613 commands of Torah is, hey, if I come upon Bryce's markings to mark his territory and I move them, like that's a bad thing. You're not supposed to do it. I think a modern equivalent is, you know, when I'm on vacation away from my house, don't take down my fence and extend your property into mine. Like that's a bad thing. And that word for the marker or the way marker is Tzion. It's the same word for Zion. In other words, it's a signpost. Another reference would be Ezekiel 39, 15, which is kind of saying the same thing. So my take on Zion is that it's a city on a hill, that it's a fortress city, and that it's a marker. And think about this. The Israelites have been marked. The Jews have been marked. Nephi is going to say this, that God loves the Jews. And so when you set up a marker, what you're doing is you're laying claim to it. And I believe, and this is really kind of cool, that when Jesus comes again, he's going to lay claim to Israel, like he's marked them, and he's laying claim to them as his possession. So another way to read Zion, to me, is it's a special possession. Because what do we put our names on? What do we mark? We mark the stuff. We put our names on the stuff we don't want to lose. So Israel, but I would also say the Jews are God's people, and he's going to come and reclaim them. So Zion is really a big deal to me. And like I said, it's not in Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy, like the first five books or the Torah doesn't talk about any of this stuff, but it does obliquely, meaning it does in types and symbols. But my take is the original stuff did. I really do think Moses talked a lot about, hey guys, we want to establish Zion and that stuff gets edited out, but it's right here at the front end. And it's very, very connected to us. Enix, Zion, Enix City, and the Latter-day Saints are incredibly connected. And I want to talk about that connection because I think that's where Enoch is going to end. That's where Moses chapter 7 is going to end. After seeing God weep, knowing that the Lord said, that which I have chosen hath pled before my face, knowing about Jesus, Enoch asks a question in verse 45, when shall the day of the Lord come? 
when shall the blood of the righteous be shed? So he gets that answer. Verse 46, it'll be in the meridian of time. And Enoch sees the Savior's life and death and resurrection. And then he hears the earth. And it's kind of fun to realize how much the earth is spoken of in our scriptures. Section 88 talks a lot about the earth, that the earth has a spirit, that the earth is going to be baptized with fire, it's going to be resurrected, it's going to die. So the earth is going to speak to Enoch and says in verse 48, when shall I rest and be cleansed from the filthiness which has gone forth out of me? So Enoch is hearing the earth groaning and pleads for the earth. Verse 50, I ask thee, O God, in the name of thine only begotten, that the earth might never more be covered by the flood. So he speaks about, let's protect the earth from the flood. And then his question was in verse 54, well, will the earth rest when Jesus is born? So verse 54, when the Son of Man cometh in the flesh, shall the earth rest? And by the way, Bryce, I think a lot of the Jews were expecting Jesus to do this. Like, Jesus, do your stuff. Make everything better, That's right? right. Jesus comes, and then the earth's going to be cleansed. And the Lord says, basically, no. That is not when the earth will rest. He talks about the death of the Savior, the saints being resurrected, but that is not when the earth is going to rest. So Enoch finally asks the question, when, Lord? When shall the earth rest? That's verse 58. So do you see how this whole conversation has kind of flowed from God weeping to the earth weeping to when's the earth going to rest? And now the answer to the question, when will the earth rest? Verse 60, as I live, this is the Lord speaking to Enoch, as I live, even so will I come in the last days, in the days of wickedness and vengeance to fulfill the oath. And that's when the earth will rest. Now, speaking of our day, verse 61, before that day, the heaven shall be darkened, the veil of darkness shall cover the earth, and the heaven shall shake, and also the earth, and great tribulation shall be among the children of men. That's our day. That's the day in which we're trying to save as many of Heavenly Father's children as we can. So in the end of verse 51, but my people will I preserve. Let me echo that. My people will I preserve. Now, here's the work of the Latter-day Saints. Knowing that our job is to prepare for the end where the earth is going to rest. Verse 62, righteousness will I send down out of heaven. Think about everything that came down out of heaven, primarily the keys and the authorities of the priesthood. Righteousness came down from heaven, and truth will I send forth out of the earth. Gee, what's that? What truth came out of the earth, like in upstate New York, in a box of stone and gold plates? So the combination of priesthood authorities and the truths of the Book of Mormon, and the main point of the Book of Mormon is to bear testimony of mine only begotten, his resurrection from the dead, the resurrection of all men. Now, notice that he says, righteousness and truth will I cause to sweep the earth as with a flood. Right there is the work and the purpose of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We have a really good quote in the show notes from President Benson saying this, that, hey, this is the Book of Mormon. And just parenthetically quick, Bryce, I would want to say this. Look at this in the verse 62 in the beginning. 
That's also Jesus. He is the righteous one sent out of heaven, and he is the truth that came out of the belly of the earth. That's just really awesome stuff. Yeah, That's beautiful. So the work of the Latter-day Saints is to sweep the earth with truth, with priesthood, with covenants, with temples, with the Book of Mormon. And the Book of Mormon and the truth is going to gather out the elect from the four corners of the earth unto a place which I shall prepare, a holy city. So our job is to gather as many as will into a holy city, for there shall be my tabernacle, and it shall be called Zion. In other words, we're going to do it again. What Enoch did, we're going to do again. We're going to build that same type of a city. We're going to build another Zion, a new Jerusalem. And now here's what's cool. Verse 63, the Lord said unto Enoch, then shalt thou and all thy city meet them there, and we will receive them into our bosom, and they shall see us, and we will fall upon their necks, and they shall fall upon our necks, and we will kiss each other. It's the great reunion. And there shall be mine abode, and it shall be Zion. We will live with Enoch and his city. They will come back to earth and join us. Imagine the stories they're going to tell. Imagine General Conference in that day when the city of Enoch comes back to the Zion that we're going to build. Imagine that union. Now, we are trying to build that city, and hence, that's why verse 18 becomes so significant. We only have this little hint as to what it took for them to build that city. We have to know that our hearts and our minds have to become one, and we have to dwell in righteousness And there can be no poor among them. We have to take the burden of my neighbor onto my responsibility. And I think the Lord here is saying, guys, it can be done because it's been done. They did it. So it's not like this impossible thing. And it was as hard in their day as it is in yours because look at the opposition that they faced. But with the Lord's help, they did it. And with the Lord's help, we can do it. And someday those two cities are going to be united. And man, will we have stories to tell them. And I can't wait to hear the stories they tell us. Getting to that day needs to be the quest of every Latter-day Saint, to build Zion. Now, in Joseph's day, they tried, and it is their failure that must prompt us to stand up and succeed. In section 105 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord put a pause until we get bigger and better and stronger, and we build temples, and we are still in that little season. So let's embrace the truth that came down out of heaven, and part of that are our temple covenants, and let's master the Book of Mormon, and let's flood the earth and gather out the rest, so that that wonderful moment will be part of our legacy, that we prepared the city that Zion and Enoch came back to. Now, Enoch saw that the Savior is going to come. Verse 65, Enoch saw the days of the coming of the Son of Man in the last days to dwell in the, on the earth in righteousness for the space of a thousand years. 
But before that day, he saw great tribulation among the wicked. And he also saw the sea, that it was troubled, and men's hearts failing them, looking forth with fear for the judgment of the Almighty God, which should come upon the wicked. That's our quest, is to save as many in the chaotic sea as we possibly can. And I love this chapter that it's been restored. As you study this week, make sure you come to understand the character of God, the weeping eyes when his children suffer. You've got to see him reaching out and yearning and wanting to do something. I hope you'll appreciate the connection between Enoch Zion and our Zion. I hope you'll appreciate all these wonderful truths that are revealed by Joseph Smith. This young man is 25 years old when he's producing Moses chapter 7. That's astounding. In a couple of days. I mean, I, I just want to add my testimony to the depth of this. As you read the Enoch literature, like what's left of the original story, and then you read this. Moses 7 is so rich and so deep. To me, it's just astounding. I don't think we really even, as a church collectively, I don't think we're really appreciating what's going on in Moses. So with that, we're going to end this podcast, and we're going to pick it up again next week when we get to Genesis 6 through 11 and Moses 8. Thanks for joining us, and make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.